you know this, that everyone wants to be part of something, right? Everyone wants to belong somewhere in some group, some team. They want to have some connections to others in that group. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, a fisherman, a hunter, or some sports team, chess club, sewing club, kite club, bird watcher, whatever you are, you want to be a part of a group that does that same stuff, that has those same values and interests. This is good and common, and this is exactly what takes place in the context of the church. You feel connected here. You feel part of this group, and that is an enjoyment to you. It's one reason you keep coming back. Usually places of belonging have qualifications for belonging, like a church normally has membership requirements. Now, of course, you can attend Sun Valley Church and not be a member, and we're thankful that you do. But we also have a membership standard. People that want to be members here, there are qualifications to become members at Sun Valley Church. Uh, for example, you need to profess your faith in Jesus Christ. You need to have been baptized. You need to have attended a class that we uh, offer called Sun Valley Church Basics. These things are something that we require to be members here. And most organizations have some way to identify those who belong to the group. So conservative or liberal politics, owning a kite, enjoying chess, paying dues, all might qualify you for the whatever group that you want to be a part of, right? In the letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul was addressing a group of people who belonged to a group. He called them gospel partners. Do you have a Bible with you today? I'd like you to open it to the first chapter of Philippians. And we're going to look here at this group of people that Paul was addressing. He called them gospel partners. I want to show you from our text today a basic qualification to be part of that important group of gospel partners and maybe some evidence to uh, affirm your participation or partnership or membership in that group. I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 8, but I'm going to just preach verses 7 and 8, all right? So listen as I read Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all in the affection of Christ Jesus." So what I want to do today is I want to show you the ground or the basis for gospel partnership so that you can know whether or not you identify with this group. And then secondly, some evidence to determine, to prove, if you will, that actual connection, the participation, the membership of you to that group. So let's look first at the ground of gospel, gospel partnership. What is the basis of being a gospel partner? 
Notice in verse 7, Paul begins to explain why he is so excited about the Philippian believers. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you. Well, what did he feel about him? In what way was he thinking? Well, if you remember last week, we covered verses 1 through 6, and we saw that he was thankful for the ways that he witnessed the active grace of God in their lives. He could see it himself. It was evident that God was working in them just by watching them. He was totally convinced of this, that God had granted them grace based on the evidence that he had seen, and that God would carry this grace on through to completion until the day of Jesus Christ, when they saw Jesus personally. And notice, I want you to notice this. This is an important point, I think, that Paul felt this way about all of them. Do you notice how many times he used the word all in verses 7 and 8? He keeps repeating it. I love you all. I know this is true of all of you. I can't wait to see all of you. He's, he's including them all. He has a sense that each and every believer in Philippi were part of this team. None of them were left out. Paul felt this way because he saw the reflection of Jesus in each of them. He had witnessed the effect of grace in their lives, which is why he could say, for you are all partakers with me in grace. So the ground of gospel partnership is very simple. They're partakers in grace. That's who's in the club. People who have partaken in the grace of God. So what is gospel partnership based on? What's it grounded on? The answer is in verse 7. They're partakers in grace. So what's a partaker of grace? Well, when you invite someone over for dinner and they partake of your food, they're partakers of your food, right? When you come to Christ or when anyone comes to Christ with their sin, acknowledge it, confess it, repent of it, and embrace the gracious offer in Christ Jesus, you become partakers of grace. And so this is what it simply means. A partaker of grace is the person who has run to Jesus Christ with their sins to receive the gracious, the gracious offer of forgiveness. Are you a partaker of grace this morning? We talk about this a lot here at Sun Valley Church. We, we talk about the Bible from Genesis to Revelation being a record of God's plan of salvation from beginning to end. Before creation, God planned to demonstrate His gracious goodness by saving and forgiving undeserving rebels. Yes, God planned that Adam and Eve would sin so that He could demonstrate His gracious goodness to all of mankind. As the Bible story opens in Genesis with Adam and Eve in the garden, God had perfectly supplied, provided for them everything that they needed, but in their sinful desire they rebelled against God wanted to run their own lives, be independent of God, and be separate from His rule, His authority. They disobeyed a clear and simple command, and as a result were separate from Him. This condition, this desire to run our own show, be independent of God, not answer to anybody, is passed down from generation to generation to generation. And I can prove this simply. No one has taught you how to be bad. Right? Has anybody... Okay, explain. This is how you do it, Sonny. No, we all are really good at this. We're born good at this. Uh, those of you who have young children would be the first to say, I affirm that truth. Right? As God's plan continued to unfold in human history, we see hints of it in Old Testament stories that direct us towards God's glorious and free solution to our sin problem. 
to separating, being separated from our Creator. God's promise to send a Savior into the world who would sacrifice himself to take away the sins of the world was fulfilled when Jesus showed up about 2,000 years ago. His perfect life, that kind of life that you and I are required to live but cannot, that perfect life is credited to the account of anyone who will put their trust in this person named Jesus Christ. So you put your trust in Jesus by acknowledging your need for him, by embracing his offer of forgiveness, his offer of reconciliation with your creator. You, you turn from your rebellion, you follow him instead of yourself, you are actually in partnership or partakers of the gospel of grace. So to bring this back to what it means to be a partaker of grace, we can see that anyone who will simply confess their sin, put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ to forgive their sin, and provide that perfect righteous life that we all need, are partakers of grace. Have you done that? If so, you are a partaker of grace with Paul and the Philippians and the rest of us who have done so. It's only grace that's behind God's forgiveness. It's only grace that remedies our sinful condition, our sinful rebellion. It's only God's grace that grants you new life and membership in his family to be restored, reconciled as his people. It is all of grace. That's why it's called partakers of grace. So are you a partaker of grace this morning? Have you turned from your sin? Have you turned from your rebellion? Turned from going your own way? Turned from rejecting the rightful rule of God in your life and embraced Jesus as your Lord and Master, your Savior, your Reconciler, your Redeemer? If you have, you are a partaker of grace. Now let's, let's look at the next important point. If indeed you are a partaker of grace... If you, if you can see the basis of that gospel partnership of grace in your life, then we should be able to be able to identify things in your life that would prove that, which is our next point, the evidence of gospel partnership. I want you to see from these verses some amazing evidences of gospel partnership. As Christian parents, what's one of the, one of the primary things we desire for our children? Isn't it this? that they will become partakers of grace. And so we, we nurture it, we pray for it, we cultivate it, and when we see it, we rejoice and give thanks to God and continue to encourage our children to follow him. And it pleases us as Christian parents. This is what Paul was doing here in the first chapter of Philippians. Paul believed that the Philippians were gospel partners primarily because he was convinced that they were partakers of grace, but also because he recognized some evidence of this in their life. He saw it himself, and he was cheering it on. So we see the evidence of gospel partnership with Paul sprinkled all over this book, but nowhere more clearly than here in verses 7 and 8. What, the first thing I want you to notice is that he recognized that the Philippians were always committed. They were always committed. This is the first evidence that I want to point out to you here found in verse 7. Look at it. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers of grace with me both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. 
No matter what Paul was doing, whether he was in prison, languishing in a Roman prison, or he was on the road boldly preaching the gospel of grace, the Philippian church were with him. They stood side by side with him for the gospel. When he was out preaching and defending the gospel and debating it with philosophers or any Jewish scholar who would engage him, the Philippians were in full support. They supported him financially, prayerfully, personally. They themselves went and brought physical aid to encourage Paul on his missionary trips. They stood by him. They were always committed, no matter what the circumstances. Let me give you some examples of this in Philippians. Bottom of your page, Philippians 1.27 says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. In other words, let's demonstrate the fact that you are partakers of grace. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith in the gospel. That is evidence that you are a partaker of grace. Whether I'm absent or with you, no matter what the circumstances, you are with me in the gospel. And then in chapter 4, verse 3, we see that the, there was a couple of women in the Philippian church that weren't getting along. I can't imagine that problem, but it was happening here. Um, a couple of women weren't getting along, and so he says this, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement. These have proven their, their participation in the gospel. They were partakers of grace. Help them continue to work side by side with me. They were always committed, this group. Next I want you to see always connected. Another evidence of being a partaker of grace Always committed, no matter what the circumstances, always committed to the, the ongoing presentation of the ministry of the gospel. Secondly, always connected. And here's where I want you to see Paul's heart for them. You know, when you, when you think through Paul's New Testament letters, loving compassion isn't the first thing that usually comes to your mind. You know, you, we've been through Romans. You know, those of you who have been through Romans know how challenging that book can be. Loving compassion isn't the first thought that comes to mind when you think of Romans. You know, you think of the doctrine of election and how scary that is and all the other things that he emphasized in that book. And then you get to Galatians. Loving compassion in Galatians? Paul sounded very ferocious in Galatians, actually. It starts to scare you a little bit. And then First and Second Corinthians, confronting Spiritual immaturity? So loving care, warm affection really aren't the first things that we think of when we think of Paul in the New Testament. Even in this letter, look at chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write you the same things is no trouble to me. Switch of tone. Look out for those dogs. <laughs> He's talking about people. Look out for those dogs. Look out for those evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He gets right after them. And so, to say Paul was such a loving, affectionate, tender man may seem counterintuitive to you until you read 1 Thessalonians and Colossians and Philippians. And then all of a sudden you recognize this guy loved people. 
He recognized that Paul was indeed affectionate. He indeed was tender and cared deeply about people, even the Romans, even the Galatians, even the Corinthians. Why do you think he was so stern with the Galatians? Because he loved them. Why did he address the spiritual immaturity of the Corinthians? Because he loved them. Why do you think he emphasized such strong doctrine in Romans? Because he loved them with all of his heart. To do anything else would be unloving. When you look at it from that perspective, you recognize right away, Paul's a loving man. And here in Philippians, he's wearing it on his sleeve. He's saying the words, affection, love, care. These two little verses demonstrate a wonderful example to us of the importance of being connected to other Christians with Christian love. Paul's godly love, his compassion and affection are beautifully revealed here for us in these two short verses. I think one reason that we need this kind of example is because of the extremes of emotion that exist in Christian circles. The balance of loving emotion and clear logical thinking is rare to find but desperately needed in the church today. It seems that a person is either on one end of the podium uh, pendulum swing or the other end of the pendulum swing. On one end of that swing, we have Christians who seem to be devoid of feelings and are only concerned with precise doctrine and parsing verbs. And then on the other end, we have spiritual butterflies who don't care about doctrine at all and think the Christian life's about smiling and holding hands. So we have this pendulum swing of Christian experience But Paul was a brilliant example of the necessity of balance between these two two extremes in the Christian life. This is why this is, I think, critically important for us to look at closely and carefully. So I want to point out some words here to you that are evidence that Paul brings up to show that, in fact, Christians ought to be connected to one another. Always connected as Paul and the Philippians obviously were. These words stand out because they describe the type of connectivity that we ought to pursue at Sun Valley Church, that you ought to be pursuing with the person in front of you, behind you, all around you, in this room right now. The first word that jumps out the page at us is this word feel in verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way. This is... A hard word even for Calvinists to say. Feel? Calvinists are generally believed to be thinkers, not feelers. Our feelings, some say, aren't important. The truth is the issue. Right? So let's look at this word feel. You know what the word literally means, the word feel? And some of your translations have that translated this way. Closely, to think. I like that. This word actually literally means to think. Let me give you some examples. Philippians 2.2. Be of the same mind. That word mind is translated feel in verse 7. Philippians 2.5. Have this mind in you, the mind of Christ. That word mind translated feel in verse 7 of chapter 1. And then in chapter 3, verse 15, he talks about thinking maturely. Be a mature thinker. That word is is translated feel 
The same word, essentially, with mind, feel, and think throughout this book. There's a nuance to it, an important connection that you need to make that I'm going to try to make for you. Paul used this word strategically to communicate that love begins in the mind. We would say that love goes beyond thought, right? We would, we would have to agree with that. Love goes beyond thought. But how does it go beyond thought? What is love? Isn't it just emotional thoughts? That's what love is. Paul used this word strategically, intended to move our, our experience out of the realm of thinking and into the realm of the heart, into the realm of feeling, emotion, connectivity with other people. Paul, especially in Romans 8, makes it abundantly clear that the way a person thinks is intimately related to the way they behave. You think this way, you'll behave this way. We do need to think, you know, correctly, if we're going to love correctly. You get to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of what? The mind. The way that your actions begin to change is by thinking differently. A person's thinking is not isolated from the overall direction of their life. So the word feel in verse 7, Philippians 1, is not just an activity of the intellect. It's a movement of the will because of what's in the, in the intellect, the mind. This is why he used the word feel. It describes Paul's heart towards the Philippians and ought to, ought to demonstrate or describe our heart towards one another. I think certain ways about you and it ought to flow out in my feelings, my actions. The next word that I want you to see here that I think is important is heart. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you because I hold you in my heart. That's a pretty moving statement, isn't it? Paul used this word often. It's a biblical way of communicating a deeper sense of feelings. He used it in his letters to many different churches and groups and even used it in his letter to Timothy. But he used it to describe a deep connection he had with the people that were receiving his letters. It's like you and me saying, I love you with all my heart. Paul was saying that, I, I hold you in my heart. It was a term of endearment. I, I love you with everything in me. This is what he was saying. So not only should we freely use this type of language with one another, but we ought to actually feel this way about one another and see how those thoughts and words flow out into action as we relate to one another. Didn't we just read 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18? Yes, would be the answer to that. We did, and we heard this. We heard that love ought not to be just in word, but what? Action, deed. In other words, <laughs> it's got to be more than just flapping of the lips. We actually have to care for one another. We actually have to spend time with one another and embrace one another and love one another and act like it. So Sun Valley Church, let me ask you this. Do you hold each other in your heart? Not, not just your little group, but do you hold 
the people in this building in your heart? If I were to choose one and put them before you, would you go, eh, pick another one? <laughs> Let's move to the next two words. I place them together. Yearn and affection. Verse 8, for God is my witness. He's calling God as his witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Oh, to be able to say that honestly. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I can't wait to be with you and demonstrate and ex express to you how much I love you. Just as much as Christ loves you. I'm sure that there were Christians in Philippi that weren't too lovable. Seems that every church has the supply of those folks. EGRs. You know what they are? EGRs? I had no clue. When I entered ministry in 1985, I was a junior high youth pastor in Auburn. And the guy who hired me, my ministry mentor at that time, was saying, John, you're always going to have EGRs. You're going to have to figure out how to get along with them. I said, EGRs, help me with that. Extra grace required to type people. Extra grace required. Every church has a supply of EGRs. And here's the stunning thought. You might be one of them. I'll talk to your spouse about that. So, to get down to the application point, are there Christian EGRs that you really don't like? Do you think that you have nothing in common with them? Back up to the basics. Are they partakers of grace? Are you? Are there Christians who are politically or ethnically different than you that just make you a little uncomfortable? Are there Christians from other denominations that you look down on? Do you find yourself avoiding certain Christians because of their personality or social status? Are they or are they not partakers of grace? Do you yearn for them with the affection of Christ Jesus? Paul said he yearned for all of them, including the EGRs. So what can we learn here from Paul's use of these terms? Particularly yearn and affection. It is this, among other things, all our Christian relationships must go beyond toleration to joyful embrace. We must embrace them because they are God-intended and strategic members of God's family. They are partakers of grace. We must personally work at constantly expanding our circle of Christian friends and acquaintances, especially if they are different than us. This is evidence to the world that what we're doing here is real when we can actually love people like this and yearn for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. Jesus, of course, is our primary example of this attitude. Christian inclusion, we might want to call it. He loved and spent time with others. He spent leisure time, meal time, travel time, prayer time, ministry time, family time with every sort of person. His friends were rich, poor, social outcasts, social elite. 
He spent time with the governmental leaders as well as with the homeless. He loved and embraced the religious and the pagan, slave owners and slaves. That's our example. And he's the one who said to the first disciples, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. By this all men will know that you love me, if you have love one for another. If you yearn with the affection of Christ Jesus, is how you'll demonstrate to your community that you actually, that this group, this membership thing is real. I want to take you to the benediction of the letter to the Romans to close our time together. It's in chapter 16 of Romans. I've put it on the overhead, and I'll just leave it up and let you look at it while I'm talking about this. When Paul penned the letter to the Romans, he was in Corinth. He was living in a borrowed room from a rich man named Gaius. And he was about to complete, most scholars believe it was about a two-week process to write the letter to the Romans. When he was about to complete the letter, a, a few Christians in Corinth wanted to gather around and hear him complete this dictation of this wonderful letter to the Romans to the scribe who happened to be a slave of Gaius. Listen as I read. Timothy, these are the people in the room. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sociopater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, well, here he is. Here's the slave, the scribe of Gaius. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter to you, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, the owner of the house, who hosts me. That's his slave. Gaius hosts me. And to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. So the first name he mentions is Timothy. Do you see that? We all know Timothy, fellow worker. Paul led him to the Lord. And evidently, Timothy had some friends, Lucius and Jason, who were along helping. Then we have this guy named Sociopater. What is he? He's a relative of Paul. He was, Paul was getting along with his relatives. Can you believe that? And then Erastus. Who was he? He was one of the social elite, socially elite in Corinth. He was the city treasurer. He was one of the top dogs in the city. And then there was another person in the room that we have a hard time making out. Who is this guy? Cordus. Scholars have determined that Cordus is the lowest ranking slave possible, and he was owned by Gaius. I want you to notice some important things here. Paul was including all these folks as he concluded probably one of the most important letters of the New Testament. In his final greetings, when he was sitting in the room dictating these words to the scribe, these things come out. These guys sitting around, 
And it seems like they were raising their hand. Greet them for me, Paul. And so he added them as they raised their hands. In these verses I read for you from Romans 16. They began to raise their hands and Paul included the greeting to people they didn't even know who were in Rome. Paul just didn't take greetings from his, you know, relative and Timothy who were well known. And Gaius, of course, he was rich. Uh, Tertius, keep out of it. You're just the scribe. Gaius is the only one that we're going to let talk here. Uh, Cordus, can you go get me a sandwich? No, none of that. He included them all. No matter what their rank, social status, position, skin color, he included them all. He sent greetings on to Roman Christians whom they had never met from people of every single category. Landowners, slaves, city officials, traveling evangelists, all were included. Every Christian who has ever lived fits into these categories. We should include and embrace one another, just like Paul did here at the end of his letter to the Romans. Just like Paul did here at the beginning of his letter to the Philippians. All of you who are partakers of grace. We should strive to include others in our lives by being in each other's homes, by sharing in each other's social activities, by being participants in the gospel. Friends, we are God's people. We are to love each other as Jesus loved us because we are all partakers of grace. We should all be focusing on this command to love one another daily. Instead of coming here once a week and going back to our own private, selfish, individual lives. Friends, we are God's people. If we're ever going to reach Yakima, let alone the rest of the planet, for Christ, we have to demonstrate an affection of Christ Jesus for one another. So, instead of hanging out with the people you always hang out with, those people who make you feel good about yourself and you're comfortable with, nothing wrong with doing that, but there is something wrong with doing that all the time to the ignoring of all the rest of us. Instead of hanging out with the gang this week, how about inviting somebody from this room that you really don't know that well? You may not even know their name. So as you partake of grace, do so with others who partake of grace. As you partner in the gospel, do so with partakers of grace. Sun Valley Church, let's hold each other in our hearts as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit and as he transforms us by his word and through others in this room to bring about Christ-likeness in each of our lives so that we can reach the lost that are around us. So as we grow in these critical areas, 
we will become more and more effective partners for the cause of Christ. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, in order for this to happen, of course, you have to do your work in us. Thankfully, you've been active in us since the day that we embraced Christ and became a partaker of grace ourselves. I ask now that, Holy Spirit, you would come and, and push us in this direction. That we would not be content with calling ourselves Sun Valley Church attenders. Father, don't let us continue in the same status quo of living a selfish private life and yet calling ourselves Christians. Holy Spirit, push us, motivate us, help us to yearn with the affection of Christ Jesus for others in this room so that we may reach those who aren't in this room with the gospel. Father, forgive us for being short-sighted and self-centered. Help us to move out of our comfort zones and into the places where you want us to live. Help us to be a church full of people who are in love with the saints, who embrace all those who partake in grace. We will praise you throughout eternity for what you're doing in us today. Amen.